The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Death controls the length of our days, but we control the depth of our days. Commitment is about choosing to pursue, in the face of our limited length, boundless depth. For the more time we add to something, the more beautiful it becomes. Welcome back to the next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnat. Happy Friday, everyone. Got some good things teed up for the weekend? Maybe you'll have a date with one of the many people you've swiped right on. Or if you'd rather stay in, you've probably got a good lineup of movies and shows in your Netflix queue, right? We live in amazing times, don't we? Whether it's romance, entertainment, information, or shopping, you've always got a seemingly infinite set of options right at your fingertips. And that's incredible. But there's a cost to it, it turns out. There's a cost to our attention, to our ability to focus. In the end, there's a cost to our happiness. But we can reclaim some of what we've lost, according to Pete Davis, author of the 2021 book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. Pete is the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network and Getaway, a company that offers unplugged escapes to tiny cabins. His Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times. And he's here to share some ideas about the joy to be had when you actually limit your options. I'm sure you've had this experience. It's late at night, and you start browsing Netflix looking for something to watch. You scroll through different titles, you even read a few reviews, but you just can't commit to watching any given movie. Suddenly, it's been 30 minutes and you're still stuck in infinite browsing mode, so you just give up. You're too tired to watch anything now, so you cut your losses and fall asleep. I've come to believe that this is the defining characteristic of my generation, keeping our options open. The Polish philosopher Zygmunt Bauman has a great phrase for what I'm talking about. He calls it liquid modernity. We never want to commit to any one identity or place or community, so we remain like liquid in a state that can adapt to fit any future shape. Liquid modernity is like infinite browsing mode, but for everything in our lives. For many people I know, leaving home and heading out into the world was a lot like entering a long hallway. We walked out of the room in which we grew up and into this world with hundreds of different doors to infinitely browse. And I've seen all the good that can come from having so many new options. I've seen the joy a person feels when they find a room more fitting for their authentic self. I've seen big decisions become less painful because you can always quit, you can always move, you can always break up, and the hallway will always be there. And mostly, I've seen all the fun my friends have had browsing all the different rooms, experiencing more novelty than any generation in history has ever experienced. But over time, I started seeing the downsides of having so many open doors. Nobody wants to be stuck behind a locked door. 
but nobody wants to live in a hallway either. It's great to have options when you lose interest in something, but I've learned that the more times I jump from option to option, the less satisfied I am with any given option. And lately, the experiences I crave are less the rushes of novelty and more those perfect Tuesday nights when you eat dinner with the friends who you have known for a long time, the friends you have made a commitment to, the friends who will not quit you because they found someone better. Put another way, we want the flexibility, the authenticity, and the novelty of browsing. But we want more than the paralysis, the isolation, or the shallowness that comes with it. This is why, even though we're often stuck on the menu screen of life, we know deep down that we want to pick a darn movie and see it all the way through before we fall asleep. As I've grown older, I've become more and more inspired by the people who have clicked out of infinite browsing mode. The people who've chosen a new room, left the hallway, shut the door behind them, and settled in. It's Fred Rogers recording 895 episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because he was dedicated to advancing a more humane model of children's television. It's the Catholic worker founder, Dorothy Day, sitting with the same outcast folks night after night after night because it was important that someone was committed to them. It's Martin Luther King Jr., and not just the Martin Luther King Jr. who confronted the fire hoses in 1963, but also the Martin Luther King Jr. who hosted his thousandth tedious planning meeting in 1967. These folks aren't just a random assortment of people. I've come to think about them as part of a shared counterculture, a counterculture of commitment. All of them took the same radical act of making commitments to particular things, to particular places and communities, to particular causes and crafts, to particular institutions and people. I say counterculture because this is not what today's dominant culture pushes us to do. The dominant culture pushes us to build our resumes and not get tied down to a place. It pushes us to value abstract skills that can be applied anywhere, rather than craft skills that might help us only do one thing well. It tells us to not get too sentimental about anything. It's better, this culture tells us, to stay distant, just in case that thing is sold off or bought out, downsized, or made more efficient. It tells us to not hold true to anything too seriously, and to not be surprised when others don't either. Above all, it tells us to keep our options open. The kinds of people I'm talking about here are rebels. They live their lives in defiance of this dominant culture. They're citizens. They feel responsible for what happens to society. They're patriots. They love the places where they live and the neighbors who populate those places. They're builders. They turn ideas into reality over the long haul. They're stewards. They keep watch over institutions and communities. They're artisans. They take pride in craft. And most importantly, they're companions. They give time to people. They build relationships with particular things, and they show their love for those relationships by working at them for a long time. And this counterculture is looking for new members. There is no better time than now to rebel from liquid modernity by doing what solid people do, by dedicating yourself to something bigger than yourself. 
When Hollywood tells tales of courage, they usually take the form of slaying the dragon. There's a bad guy and a big moment where Brave Knight makes a definitive decision to risk everything to win some victory for the people. It's the man standing in front of the tank, or the troops storming up the hill, or the candidate giving the perfect speech at the perfect time. But here's the problem with Hollywood dragon slaying. In reality, when the cinematic moments arrive, they don't really move the needle much. The epic speeches and the epic takedowns don't actually shift opinion. The dramatic scene where you sit down with a troubled child and tell him he's allowed to cry while, you know, string music plays in your head doesn't solve that kid's problems. Throwing the bad guy in jail doesn't heal the community, and playing a romantic song in the rain doesn't lock in the relationship. Real change does not look like Hollywood dragon slaying, because real change takes a long time. Creating relationships takes a long time, and healing broken relationships does too. Building institutions takes a long time, and so does reforming institutions that have been corrupted. Political change takes an especially long time to take ideas from unthinkable to thinkable but fringe to debatable to popular to consensus is a trek. And there is no perfect blueprint you can use to swiftly engineer the results you want. The process is slow and organic, not quick and mechanical. But what I've learned from dedicated people is that Hollywood heroism isn't the only valor around. It's not even the most important type of heroism for us to model, because most of us don't have to face many dramatic, decisive moments in our lives, at least not ones that spring up out of nowhere. Most of us just confront daily life, normal morning after normal morning, where we can decide to start working on something or keep working at something or not. That's what life tends to give us, not big, brave moments, but a stream of little ordinary ones out of which we must make our own meaning. The heroes of the counterculture of commitment, long-haul heroes, through day in, day out, year in, year out work, become the dramatic events themselves. The dragons that stand in their way are the everyday boredom and distraction and uncertainty that threaten sustained commitment. And their big moments look a lot less like sword-waving and a lot more like gardening. We often assume that some acute and looming threat, be it a foreign invader or a domestic demagogue, will be our civilization's downfall. But if we are to end, that end is just as likely to come from something far less dramatic, our failure to sustain the work. It's not only the bombs or the bullies that should keep us up at night. It's also the gardens untilled, the missions unheeded, the long simmering calamities unhalted. But we need not be afraid, for we have in our power the ability to perform the slow but necessary work of turning visions into projects, values into practices, and strangers into neighbors. But only if we commit. What stops us from diving into commitments? Three fears. First, we have a fear of regret. We worry that if we commit to something, we will later regret having not committed to something else. We don't want to wake up 20 years down the line haunted by what could have been. Second, we have a fear of association. We think that if we commit to something, it will threaten our identity, our reputation, and our sense of control. We ask ourselves, 
am I really the type of person who does this? We wonder what our friends will think of our commitment. We worry about all the people we are going to have to deal with if we join up with something. Third, we have a fear of missing out. We fear that if we commit to something, the responsibilities that come with the commitment will prevent us from being everything, everywhere, with everyone. But when you talk with folks who are deep into their own long hauls, you'll learn that these fears start to fade as soon as you dive into something. When you're dedicated, you stop fearing missing out on the latest novelty because you get to experience the sweetest novelties of all. The novelties on the other end of long hauls. The novelty of mastering a craft or celebrating an anniversary or watching your project take off or becoming a respected elder in a community. When you're dedicated, you stop fearing the chaos of association because the discomfort and insecurity of community building eventually, over time, through many fits and starts, conflicts and reconciliations, transforms into the deep comfort and security of having old friends. And finally, when you're dedicated, the fear of regret fades because your commitment starts becoming part of you. You stop feeling like you are always actively choosing to continue being committed to something outside of you. Instead, the commitment starts feeling inside of you. Your commitment becomes part of who you are. The grim fact looms. Our time is limited. For many of us, this is behind our infinite browsing. For some, our fear drives us to endless novelty as we try to play every game at the carnival before closing time. For others, our fear paralyzes, heightening our indecision. The poet Mary Oliver once asked, Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I think she meant it as an encouragement, but some of us might find the question haunting. What if I plan wrong? But long-haul heroes will tell you, the more we dedicate ourselves, the more these fears fade. Death controls the length of our days, but we control the depth of our days. Commitment is about choosing to pursue, in the face of our limited length, boundless depth. For the more time we add to something, the more beautiful it becomes. The two meanings of the word dedicate are revealing. First, it means to make something holy, like dedicate a memorial. But it also means to stick at something for a long time, like she was dedicated to the project. I don't think this is a coincidence. We do something holy in the extraordinary moments when we set out on long hauls, and we do something holy in those countless ordinary moments when we sustain them. And in the most dedicated people I have known, I have witnessed how that pursuit of holiness comes with a side effect of immense joy. It's not the happiness of feeling good all the time, but the joy of feeling at home in existence. Like Mother Pollard said during the Montgomery bus boycott, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. You can see that joy in the eyes of dedicated older people who experience so deeply what the poet Jack Gilbert once called the beauty that is of many days, steady and clear, the normal excellence of long accomplishment. Thank you, Pete beautiful ideas, and maybe instead of spending my weekend in infinite browsing mode, I'll put some time into my long-haul commitments. 
One of those is my commitment to you, listeners, that I'll be back next week with a new set of carefully selected ideas from the best in recent nonfiction. I hope this is material that will not distract you, but educate and inspire you. That's what we're here for. This week's episodes were written and produced by me, Michael Kovnett, and edited by Caleb Bissinger. The Next Big Idea Daily is part of the LinkedIn family of podcasts. See you Monday.